0: Well, over the course of the past two weeks, I preached out of familiar passages, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, in order to highlight seven principles, That's seven convictions that should be indelible marks of the Christian faith. That's seven things that we as a people, as Christ's church, should want to be known for, should strive to be known for. Two of those seven things were a conviction that doctrine matters and an uncompromising commitment to God's Word. Uh, During those sermons, I kind of explained that there's an overlap, an obvious overlap in those two things, that there should be an uncompromising commitment to the Word of God and a commitment and a conviction that doctrine matters. Now, it's clear that the authors of the Bible care that you and I know what we believe, and know why we believe it, and to see the foundation for that in his word. is critical for us. In fact, we're going to be in a passage today where the author is going to repeat almost the same thing over and over and over again, because he really cares that we understand and know what the Bible says about particularly what he's covering today. You and I believing true things will be our defense against, our protection against error, and not just in thought, but in what we do. If we don't see that the Bible says X, we may struggle quite a bit with applying all of God's word to our lives. We have to know what the Bible says. We have to agree with what the word says. It's a defense for us against error. It's what we prepare our children with. It's what we try to kind of uh, harness up their, their armor for. And this is the washing of the water of the word that husbands should be doing for their wives and that Christ does for his church. In our text today, the author is going to compare the repeated animal sacrifices of the Old Testament to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And the way that he's going to do this is by a repeat fashion, like I said already, is he's going to make it incredibly clear for us, as much as he can, of how the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament works itself out. This is really important for you and I to know. And I hope that as we get going, you'll, you'll begin to see why more and more. But it's becoming increasingly common for people today, Christians, th- those who claim Christ, to undermine and kind of overlook the Old Testament. That's those icky days of a wrathful God and bloody sacrifices. But the Bible, the whole Word of God, Old and New Testament, are God's commands, are God's Word, are His covenantal story given to his people. You and I understanding the Old Testament will not only aid in our understanding of the New Testament, but will help defend and protect us from error. So I want to go ahead and read through the text today. This is the plan. I'm going to read through Hebrews chapter 10. Our verses are number are 1 through 18. If you have the Bible, go ahead and open that up to Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. This is a, kind of a long passage. I'm going to cover a lot more than we typically would. I expect in future weeks we're going to revisit some that are in here, uh, some verses that are here to try to, to get a little bit more out of them. But for today, I want to look through this whole passage, 1 through 18, as a, as, a, as a whole, and begin to see why it is that the author has given this to us, why the Holy Spirit inspired these words to be on a page for our benefit. So I'm going to read through 1 through 18, pray that God will be with us in that, and then go back a verse or two at a time, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, "'Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure.'" We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we may see these words internalize what they mean, and we can get from this text exactly what you intended for us to get. Lord, if there's any bridges we need to cross in understanding Old Testament things, perhaps, uh, maybe language things, I pray that you'd help. Just send your Holy Spirit. Help us to, to have our, our, the, heart, uh, the eyes of our hearts opened, Lord, our minds enlightened that we can see this. Father, we don't just want to collect knowledge. We want to know true things that we can love you more, your gospel more, and that it would change our lives. So, Father, please help us. We need you to show up in order for that to happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back to verse 1 again take a look at what's going on. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, real quick, just to spin you up on where we are in Hebrews 10. The author who's writing this letter is writing it to Hebrews. This has been uh, historically, we've seen it as this way because he's continually grabbing Old Testament, Hebrew truths, and he's explaining from those Hebrew truths why it is so significant that the Lord has come, what it is that he has come for, and how the Old Testament relates to the new. He's explained to us already. Many times, that Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophet, than the Old Testament priest, than the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he's making a case that the old covenant is gone now that the new covenant has come. And he's building on previous passages where he, he literally just finished saying that it is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. He also says that we are to be eagerly waiting for Jesus. His second coming. And then he says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. He calls the old covenant, the law of Moses, a shadow of the good things to come. That's what it has. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come. The law was not the solution. It could never provide salvation for the people. But what it could do, we're going to continue to see him uncover as we move on in this passage. He says, though, that that Old Testament law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Before we get very far, I just want to make sure we see that word perfect. We are to be made perfect. We must be made perfect perfect. The law could not perfect those who draw near. The law couldn't do it. No Old Testament believer, by drawing near, could be made perfect. The coming forward with the sacrifices of an animal could not perfect those who would draw near. And we're going to see him explain why this is so evident, because the second you walk back out of offering a sacrifice, you need to go back and offer another one, because you're not yet made perfect. That's what he's going to do. But We have to see that you and I must be made perfect in order to get into heaven. Let me just say it simply like that. In order to be saved, you must be perfect. Perfection is the standard. I had the great advantage of growing up in Christian churches. I'm very grateful for the foundation that I learned there. But one of the biggest evangelistic misses that I remember learning as I grew up in Christian churches was this. They were eager to tell people that you don't have to be perfect to get to heaven. Now, pause. I want to be slow to judge here. There's a truth there, isn't there? If what a Christian means when they say you don't have to be perfect to get into heaven is saying that imperfect people can get into heaven, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. That's why I'm saying this is an evangelistic miss, not heresy. Yes, it's true. Imperfect people get to heaven. But the reason I think it's a miss is Just imagine how much clearer the gospel could be conveyed if we were to explain just how dire our situation is, how high the standard is, and how desperately we need to be made perfect. As a church here, we, we love a bold approach to evangelism. That's one of the things that we, we have as a conviction, a principle here, one of those seven things I referenced earlier in the sermon. Uh, We've done street evangelism regularly since the first days of the Mission Church and and joined with other churches and Christians who do the same. We love sharing the gospel even with strangers. And I've been in hundreds and hundreds of conversations with people, strangers on the street. And I only have a couple in mind that I can remember where a person did not agree that they're imperfect. A couple of times there have been a person who said, well, yeah, sure, I'm perfect. Well, that's a sin right there. So there's one. Like, no, really, I'm perfect. That's the second sin. Now you lied also on top of that. You kind of keep going. So most people will go, well, no, I'm not perfect. Well, you have to be perfect. You have to be perfect to get to heaven. You can't get in there. I use the example sometimes. It's like a beautiful, white, pristine mansion of a house with white carpet. You're not going to walk in there with the blood and mud all over your body of your sinfulness and stain that home. You must be made perfect to get into heaven. It's that's, that's really helpful to start there. The gospel is not that we get in as imperfect, but that because of Jesus, we can be made perfect. We're going to come back to this perfect language later. I think the pinnacle text in this passage. We'll, we'll be there in a few minutes. I think you and I cannot solve our own sin problems. Just last night, our three-year-old, Lomara She did one of those uh, moments where the whole plate of of food fell off the table. And like in that resounding plate hits the ground. Dad freaks out over messes. I'm like such a clean freak in the house. So when that goes down, like everybody looks to me and I was, I should not get angry about messes. But my wife, before I even said anything, she just goes, Mara, go get the sponge and clean it up. To which I immediately thought, no, Why? Because that's what she did. She got a sponge and came back. And what do you think a three-year-old does when there's there's hummus and chicken and and spices and stuff all over? What do you think she does? Smears it all over. There was a couple cracks that didn't have food in them before. Thankfully, they do now. Okay. That's like you and me trying to deal with our sin problems. We're just going to rub that around. You and I are not adequately prepared. We are not worthy of even fixing all of our own sin problems. The Bible uses language to convey this for us. We see in like places like Isaiah 64:6 6 in the Old Testament that all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. The best we can offer is corrupted. You and I, if we were to survey right now the places in our life where we are the most pure, If you were to ask Rich, where's the place in your life where it's the purest, the the least tainted? What kind of love might you have in your life that, that is the least corrupted, the love I have for my kids? I just genuinely love and adore my kids sacrificially. Is that love perfect? Nope. I fail all the time in that love. There is no category of your life that is not tainted, that is not corrupted because of our sinfulness, our fallenness. We have nothing to offer but more mess to the situation. The law in the Old Testament was just as incapable of solving our sin problem as our works. Look what he says as he continues on. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins Otherwise, Uh, this is one of those classic New Testament logic arguments. Where he's like, look, it wouldn't even make sense. It wouldn't even make sense for you to have to continue to have sacrifices if one could make you perfect. If it could cleanse you fully, you wouldn't need another sacrifice. You get the logic of the argument being said here? The author shows that the simple fact that the Old Testament sacrifices were perpetual, highlighted the ineffectiveness of those sacrifices, so not only were the Old Testament sacrifices unable to purify the sinful hearts of those who offered them, but the fact that they were repeated was a recurring evidence of their ultimate futility. I like to think about a Hebrew child asking his uh, Hebrew mother or father in that day, you know, back in the old covenant day, Daddy, we just offered a sacrifice yesterday. Yes, son? Well, if our sacrifices made God pleased and our sins are cleansed and we're okay then why do we need to offer another one well son because that sacrifice wasn't worthy enough to cover all of our sins i want you to understand this was not a flaw in the design this was not god's just good effort first time around that he had to fix in the future jesus is not a fix It was intended for the Old Testament law to be ineffective in this way. It was to remind us of our need to be saved and point us to a coming Savior, as we'll see more clearly. Now, listen, if you're coming into our study through the book of Hebrews right now, and this is the first or second Hebrew sermon that you've heard, you may have missed the fact that we've spent months making it clear that the Old Covenant was a conditional covenant while the New Covenant is an unconditional covenant, And here's how that worked out. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were designed for a reason, to keep the people in the land. It wasn't to save them. It was that they would persist in the land. It wasn't about salvation. Yes, the faithful, believing person would do the sacrifices, but that's not what saved. It never could save. Works could never, ever save. It's not as though we look in the Old Testament and say, well, they used to be saved by works, now we're saved by faith. Wrong. It never worked that way. This is why we see passage after passage after passage on repeat in the Old Testament where God says, if you obey my command, if you follow my law, then, if then, conditional, then you will last long in the land I'm giving you. You'll flourish, you'll prosper, you'll defeat all of your enemies. Eat of the fruit of the vine. All these passages. But if you do not obey my law, you will have broken my covenant, and I will, what, what does he say? I will kick you out of the land. That's what he says. This law of sacrifice was the way the people would demonstrate their faith before God that they would last in the land. So those sacrifices were never designed to be salvific, to save the soul of a person. It was not possible. We're going to see this over and over and over. The author doesn't go, it used to be possible, now the rules change. Never. All the time the author's going to go, listen, it is not possible for animal sacrifice to have saved a soul. And here he uses that logic. Because if it could have done that, why would they need to be repetitive? Why would it need to happen again and again and again? This is what consciousness of sins means. It's moral awareness of our faults. These people should be, by their regular sacrifice, reminded of sins. That's exactly what the next verse says. But in these sacrifices, those Old Testament sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament system of sacrifice was not designed to take away sins. It's not as though God just provided a miracle in that moment to somehow make that animal's blood worthy of washing away the sins of a nation or an individual family. It was to point to something. No works ever could, ever will save, but only God's grace through faith. He continues on. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now here the author is going to give a citation from the Old Testament and a couple of quick things to say. First, reminder again, this author does not appeal to his own authority. Constantly does this. He constantly goes, look, even the Bible has always said this. This is in the, in the word. This is not something that I'm making up. And he points to Psalm chapter 40. But if you, know, you notice something that he says here, when Christ came into the world, he said, earlier I said that we have an uncompromising commitment to the word of God here at the Mission Church. And we mean the whole word, Genesis to Revelation. What's it's there, it's truth. And I've heard so many people say in our modern day, in order to get around sin issues, well, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. Well, Jesus, he never mentioned law. Well, Jesus, he never mentioned and fill in the blank. Yes, he did. Every word of the Bible he said. Look, Psalm forty. This is a psalmist in the Old Testament. A psalmist inspired by the Holy Spirit write these words. And the author of Hebrews attributes psalm 40 to jesus that's jesus when christ came into the world he said who said it jesus said it who wrote psalm 40 jesus did who wrote hebrews chapter 10 jesus did who gave us all of matthew all of genesis all of revelation everywhere jesus did he inspired the holy spirit inspired human authors to write these things our God has given us every word in the Bible. We don't play that like, well, if it's in red letters, then that must be the really true stuff, and the other stuff is less true. Guys, that is, that is a flagrant error, and unfortunately, too many people think that way. This author didn't. Do you remember when Jesus said, and he quotes Psalm 14, remember when Jesus said that? I want you to look at something here, and this is kind of important. As a pastor, as I'm preaching through this for you and doing background study on this text, one of the things that I try to do in a sermon is help, uh, help you when I know that there's a common error or a common objection to a passage that's existent out there. I want to help kind of cover that quickly for you, even if it's not really the point of the text. So I'm admitting what I'm about to say is not the point of the text. It might be helpful for you because this particular passage is one that is used particularly by modern-day Jews. They put their finger on this verse, verse 5, and they'll go, your Bible is a lie, this verse. I want to guard you from that. And here's why why they say this. I'm just going to look at the same passage. This is verses 5 through 7. Let's zoom in to verse 5, and I've highlighted one part of it. Look, zoom in. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. You guys see that part? Okay. If you were right now in your English translation... This is true of almost all the modern English translations. If you were to flip back to Psalm 40, where this comes from, this is what you'll see. I'm just going to put it up. I'm reading out of the ESV, English standard version. so I'm going to put up the ESV of Hebrews 10:5, and I'm going to put it up in Psalm 40, what this is citing. Here's Psalm 40, verse 6. "In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear." So pause. You see that? You note know the difference? That one clause, a body you have prepared for me, and the other one, you have given me an open ear. See those two? Why the difference? No, here's the simple answer for you. It's, really, it's actually not complicated, but something helpful to know. The author of Hebrews is citing the Greek version of the Old Testament. Call that the Septuagint. He does this most of the book of Hebrews, cites the, the Greek translation, because he knows that's the Bible that all of his audience has. Hey, open your, crack open your scrolls and go back to this passage. This is the, ver- the translation that they're going to have, so the, the words are going to line up exactly. That's what it says in the Greek version. However, in our English translations, we don't go through Greek and then to Hebrew to get back to the Old Testament, but our modern English translations come from the original Hebrew writing, Hebrew text, so we don't go through Greek. That's why we'll see the Greek interpretation of the text in Hebrews 10 and the Hebrew translation of that text from Psalm 40, verse 6. Now, one question still remains. Why the discrepancy? Okay, get it. I get it. Why the discrepancy? Was one of those translations wrong? Well, no, I don't think at all. I don't think there's anything wrong about either of these translations. It just goes to show the diversity that some of these words can contain. Like a scholarly circle, you might call this the semantic range of a word. We have this all the time in English. Just just think of the simple, the word rock. The word rock in English. Well, that can be used to refer to a stone or an action, swaying something like a baby back and forth like this. Uh, rock can be referred to a genre of music. It can be referring to uh, uh, like ice in a drink on the rocks. Uh, maybe maybe a, a, a big diamond ring. Look at that rock, Right? We can use that in a whole bunch of different ways. In fact, I read once that uh, throughout all English-speaking countries, we can use that word rock in 105 distinctive different ways. The point is, you and I know that there are lots of words like this. and Sometimes, the only way you know what use is intended in a particular passage is the context of it. This is very common for us to see. These kind of semantic range issues, for the record, pop up all over the Bible. We'll see them Old and New Testament. We have to figure out what meaning that word has in the context of the flow there. And most of them aren't really controversial because it's very clear what's being talked about when you get there. You say, I love rock music. They're probably not thinking, so you make music with rocks? You probably know what you're talking about by the context, right? But the reason this particular instance gets more press is that those who hold the Old Testament as true yet reject Jesus, so namely modern Jews, They see this as an intentional Christian reinterpretation of an Old Testament prophecy in order to make it fit Jesus. In fact, there was a a person who had been part of Christian ministries a couple years ago that uh, apostatized, left uh, supposed Christian faith, and this was one of the primary reasons. He said, because this text proves Christians are lying about what the Old Testament says. I want you to think about this. The context here is very clear. The author is not using this text to talk about the incarnation, the fact that Jesus was given a body here on earth, but about the obedience of Jesus. In fact, the actual words are, you have, give, you have dug an ear for me. That's actually the actual Hebrew words. You've dug an ear for me. You created something physical for me for a purpose. That's the idea. And the semantic range could be bodied for that. So we can see this as we look at this. The text is talking about obedience, and irrespective of which English translation of this verse is closest to the original inspired meaning, both are essentially saying the same thing. The psalmist is telling of one who heard the word of God and was delighted to do all that he was commanded. Now, If that kind of went over your head a little bit, like, what's the point? Why is that a problem? If you ever have somebody say this to you, let this draw to memory. Go back and check this sermon and see that point, okay? A lot more has been written on this, but maybe a quick primer for you. This will be a service to you. The point here is that the Old Testament sacrifices were never meant to replace a heartfelt love for God and a commitment to true justice. I want to read for you a passage that's similar, parallel one to this, from the Old Testament, from the prophet Amos. He's speaking on behalf of God. God is giving these words to come out. This is is like God speaking. Acts chapter, Amos 5, verses 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness be like an ever flowing stream. Hosea 6 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. All of the outward signs of a religious life are useless. If there is no love for God, if there is no desire for justice, no knowledge of him. There may not be any clearer example of this error than what we observe in the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders in the days of Jesus, right? What was Jesus' indictment against those leaders, those Pharisees, those experts in the law? What was his indictment? Was it, you're not following the law all the way? That wasn't the problem. You follow the nitty-gritty details of the law without loving God, which is actually the true law. That's the whole story of the law. In fact, they were missing parts of it. But it wasn't that they didn't do the outward signs. They did all the outward signs. The problem was the heart. This shows for us again the problem with the old covenant. A person could do every outward thing that the law demanded and still be far from God. Someone could hate God and just go do the sacrifice that's necessary for this particular thing, and on the outside, it all looked good. That was a problem. You're not fine just because you've done the outward things. Brothers and sisters, we have to take this to heart. As Christians today, just because we gather to worship, just because we open the Bible together, just because we pray with one another, just because we do things that can be observed outwardly, that does not mean that our heart is at peace with the Lord. It is possible for a Christian church to say that they do all of those things and do them, actually pull them off. Get together, do songs, true things, true things about Jesus, true things about the gospel. Open the Bible and look at generally true things. Um, uh, pray, ask God to, to do things in their midst. You can accomplish all those outward things and the Lord hate them. That's scary that should be a constant and a clear reminder. Brothers and sisters, it's not just about checking all the boxes. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. It's the Lord saying, I don't even want to hear those songs. They're not from the heart. This was a major problem with the Old Covenant. And this is what the Messiah coming, was going to do different. He was going to do the will of the Lord. This is what it says in the next verse uh, coming after this. When he, Jesus, said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus has come to do the will of the Father. That's the point, you see, Jesus did the full will of the Father in perfect love, in perfect peace, in perfect righteousness. He did all of the right things before he offered himself a sacrifice. And he does away with the first in order to establish the second. There's, there's few places you can find clearer language about the fact that the old covenant is gone and the new covenant has come. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 will say the same thing. It'll say, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one Obsolete. Because it's been fulfilled. It's been completed. That's why you and I don't sacrifice animals anymore. That's why we don't go to temples anymore. That's why we don't have living prophets and priests anymore. Not like it is in the Old Testament. Because Jesus fulfilled all of those things. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. You and I ought not look for first covenant stuff. We ought not to be seeking, where's where's that, where's that? He's done away with the first in order to establish the second. The Lord has made it clear, the things that carry on for us, the moral code of God, the fact that he has given us commandments to live by, the fact that he has created all things and therefore has told us how to live. He will hold us accountable for what we've done, and it is only by faith that we can be saved. We no longer have blood sacrifices for a reason. This is, this is not just uh, Old Covenant. Like, Christians look at the Bible like, well, we just don't like the Old Testament stuff. That's just weird. We like the new version better. No, there's a reason. Because God said he does away with the first in order to establish the second. He goes on in Hebrews 10 to continue. And by that will, that will, That will, the will of the Father that the Son accomplishes. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. A couple of things real quick here to make a point of. First, by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It was the will of the Father to give us the law in the Old Testament that covenant, to establish an old covenant with us. And it was the will of the Father to establish a new covenant with us through the blood of his Son. All of this is the will of God. It is such an error for believers today to to allow that lie to creep in that God changed. He was different in the Old Testament, wrathful and angry, and he operated in a certain way. But now, now Jesus stepped in, Dad, I got this, you're a little too angry. It doesn't work like that. It was his will to establish both Old and New Covenant. We don't don't pull out any part of the Bible and say that doesn't matter. All of it does. It all had a purpose. This is the gospel, that it was the will of the Father to send his only Son to live perfectly, to do all the things, not just the outward signs. Jesus did the outward signs. He did the things that were commanded according to the law. But he had the heart right too. He's the only one who wasn't corrupted. The only one who was perfect in everything that he had done. The only one not deserving of death on a cross. And yet he went to the cross. He took the death we earned that we would get the life he earned. And the only way that switch can be made is not by us entering in with more works, but by belief. I believe that that sacrifice offered by the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, is the only possible way for me to be saved. If you're hearing this today, you're not a believer in the Lord. You've not embraced this. You need to see. You're a sinner. You're imperfect. And only by being made perfect by Jesus can you get into heaven. And how does that work? Because the perfections of Jesus get traded. That we get the righteousness of Christ. And he gets the sinfulness of us. And he takes that to the cross and bears the penalty, the wrath of God for that sin for by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's going to get here. You know, this is, this is such a critical thing. A major part of, of Catholic tradition that kind of entered in over the course of history and, and for a dominant amount of uh, years, uh, Catholic Church held that during the Mass that the, uh, the, the breaking of bread and, and, and the, the cup of wine that represent the body and blood of Jesus actually became the body and blood of Jesus. They call this transubstantiation. And the idea here is that at every Mass, there would be a re-sacrifice of Christ all over again. So we need to sacrifice Christ again, then sacrifice him again, then sacrifice him again. In fact, the famous Martin Luther, who uh, in 1517 nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door in Germany and kind of kicked off the, the Reformation, Look at back at Protestant history. When he was a Catholic priest, he, he actually the first time that he was uh, doing the Eucharist, he was holding those elements. He spilled some of the cup, and he thought that God was going to strike him dead, and he felt a certain kind of judgment because he had profaned the blood of the Lord in spilling it, because he was supposed to sacrifice that perfect Lamb all over again, and that Jesus is sacrificed repeatedly, daily, over and over. But you got to see this: that the reformers used this verse right here to show that the offering of the body of Jesus Christ is once and for all finished. That's why it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. How many sacrifices of Jesus are there? One. Done. Finished. You know, if you were to look back at the furnishings listed in the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament, one thing you won't find is a a chair for the priest to sit on, a bench to rest when they need to kind of hang out. No, why? Because it was their job to be on their feet doing the work necessary of offering up those sacrifices that the people could stay in the land. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, all time, single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Why would he sit? Because his work is finished. It's complete. It's done. And he has been waiting from that time, back when he came, 2,000 years ago, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You and I are guaranteed victory in Christ in this age. He promised he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He promises that he will be with us to the very end of the age. The church will succeed. It will do exactly what he intended for it to do in this age. And we are to be a part of that. I'm looking forward to the day that I get to go into this doctrine a bit more. That's not the point of this particular passage. I'm looking forward to talking to you about what the Bible says about this. This victory for Christ, his enemies be made in a footstool for his feet, because this imagery is drawn upon throughout the whole Bible. It was in Hebrews 1, if you're with us then, 1 Corinthians 15. It's the most commonly drawn upon Old Testament passage in the Bible Jesus' victory over his enemies. And this whole passage culminates, I think, in verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the crux of it. This is the head. This is the the big idea of this passage. You need to know and understand these two words. What does it mean to be perfected? That the work is finished, completed, accomplished, done. No more work to be accomplished for our salvation. No more work accomplished for you and I to be saved. But look at the second half. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What does that mean? Being made holy being made more like Christ, being conformed to the image of the Son. God's working on us. He who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1.6. God is working right now on you and me. We're not perfected yet in that sense, right? So this is why we can look around and say, man, I struggle with sin every day. I need accountability. I need prayer. I need confession. I need help. Lord, give me the power to overcome these things. That's true of us. While at the same time, we have been perfected for all time. For all time. How does this work? How does it work out that we're perfect and yet being made perfect? The whole Bible uses language like this without without even blinking. The authors of the New Testament don't even seem to care to explain this oftentimes. They say things like this: You are holy and being made holy. You are saved and being saved you are righteous and being made righteous all over the place it's an already not yet this is a beautiful reality this means that you and I are seated in Christ in the heavenly places to use language from another passage in the New Testament we're seated in Christ in the heavenly places which means when the father looks to us for judgment okay it's time to time to see is this person worthy of judgment where's rich he looks to his right and he sees his son And that's where he looks when he's looking to a believer. We are seated in Christ, that we receive an inheritance of eternal life. And he says, I see perfection. I see righteousness. You and I get a righteousness that is not our own, an alien righteousness, the reformers would say. It's not because we have done good. And as a result of being perfected for all time, We are now being sanctified. We're becoming more like him in our flesh today. We have got to see the relationship between faith and works here. We've got to see this clearly. Because there's a ditch on both sides of the road. You can either run into one error and say, Ah, nothing you do today matters at all. You don't need to be sanctified. It does say we're the ones being sanctified. Our whole lives should be worked on by the Holy Spirit of God to conform us into the image of Jesus. That should be happening day in and day out. You should be putting to death the deeds of the flesh, confessing those sins, finding accountability to deal with those things. Every day that should be true of you at the same time acknowledging for all time I've been made perfect in Christ. This is such a significant thing because you can easily fall to one side or the other in error on this whole thing. You can think your works save you, or that works have no place in the Christian life, neither of which are true. We have been perfected and are being sanctified. Both of those things at the same time. And he, can, he, he builds on this. He, he kind of uses the next little, little paragraph to hammer this part even more clearly. This time by quoting Jeremiah 31 again. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The author again appeals to Jeremiah 31, as he did back in chapter 8. We spent weeks on Jeremiah 31 back there. But he draws on it again. He goes, remember that? And and just real quick, because it's hard to skip over this, take a look. Who is he attributing the writing of Jeremiah to? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said this. Not just Jeremiah, not just the opinions of a dude. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us. And then he cites Jeremiah 31. There's a new covenant that will be established after the days of the old one. And what will happen then? I will put my laws on the hearts, their hearts, and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Both the Old and New Testaments agree that in the days of the New Covenant, every New Covenant member will have been absolutely forgiven of all of their sins. All of them. If you are in the New Covenant, your sins have been remembered no more. This is true of us today if you're a believer. By faith, your sins have been forgiven. They will not be counted against you any longer. We do not fall under that judgment any longer because all the judgment due for sins was once and for all satisfied in Jesus on the cross. This is why it says that he has perfected for all time, not just he did a work so that things that happened in your past are good, now and forever, all time, your sins have been dealt with. For all time, he has made us perfect and concludes with this beautiful truth. Where there is forgiveness of these there's no longer any offering for sin. He lands yet again, repeating what he's been saying this whole time. Because the question from his Hebrew audience is, well, why, why don't we just continue doing the sacrifices? Because if your sins have been forgiven, there's no longer any offering for sin. That's why. So what are we to take from this passage? Let's look at a few things real quick in closing. First, this author cares deeply that we believe these truths. The author is concerned that his audience understand how the Old Covenant relates to the New Covenant. We've talked about this many times at this church. We really believe that doctrine matters. We don't just kind of go like, well, if there's something I can go do today about this, then maybe it'll be worth sticking. No, all truth matters. All of it matters. And he's making it very clear to this audience, you've got to understand the way the Old Covenant and New Covenant relate. This matters. There will be major error in your life in thinking and in deed if you don't get this right. You've got to see this We should not reject the Old Covenant because it was designed by God to highlight our sin and our need for a Savior and point to our need for Him. We are to see the Old Covenant, love the Old Covenant, see those passages, swim in those Old Testament passages for what they're there for. Agree with and appreciate exactly why they're there. But the days of the Old Covenant are done. That's why it says He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So first, we need to believe what he has said here. Second, we need to be warned. Be warned. I've said this a little bit already. This is, this is kind of implied in this text here today. To never forget that the outward signs of a religious life are powerless to save. As many people in the Old Testament thought. As many people prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus thought. Even the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and ruling leaders of the Jews thought, I'm doing the outward signs. Doesn't that mean I love God? Not necessarily, no. In fact, you could do all the outward signs and kill his son. You and I need to be careful to not import that same error from the Old Testament into our day. We have to be careful to not just go, I check all the boxes, I do all the Christian things. Doesn't that mean I'm good? No, not because of that. Not because of those works, no. Jesus commanded that we be perfect. Think about this for a second. Jesus made commands in the New Testament. God made commands in the Old Testament. Could we say that God required that the faithful Old Testament person perform sacrifices? Absolutely we can. That was a requirement. They were demanded to do that. He commanded people to do that or they get kicked out of the land, remember? In the New Testament, Jesus commands that we, lots of things. We love one another, and we get baptized, That we make disciples, that we eagerly wait for his return. That we be perfect, as his Father in heaven is perfect. All these are commanded. This so isn't Jesus saying, hey, if you kind of want to obey the law, do that. If you, if, if you kind of think it'd be good for you to make disciples, then go, go for that too, if you're personally convicted. No, those are commands of Jesus, but obedience to those commands doesn't save us. You see that? You can both have Jesus command us to do things and set our lives to do those things and those things not be what save us. I've run into this many times with my Mormon neighbors and friends. When I ask them, what's the requirement for eternal life? They go, just believe. And I go, you know that's not true. Don't you think there's more than that? Isn't there a list? Well, can I be saved if I don't get baptized? Well, you obviously have to do that. Okay, well, how is that not a work that's added to our faith? And they'll say, well, Jesus commanded it. Yes, he did. He commanded tons of things. But you and I are not saved by obeying the commands of God. Passages like this should be used to help us in that. You and I ought never think like that and then begin just doing in order to curry favor with the Lord. We need to have a right understanding of works and faith. Be warned that we don't fall into that error. And lastly, we must see that Jesus' sacrifice has made us perfect, has finished its work. That that's, I think, the primary purpose of this passage. If you were to say, Rich, if you were to zoom out, why do you think this 18 verses is in here? To make it clear that as distinctive from the old covenant sacrifices, Jesus' sacrifices did a once and for all finished, complete, done work. This is why Jesus doesn't get on the cross and say, it is finished on my behalf. Good luck. Now you take over. It's not the end. The work is done. He has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Everything about the New Testament is an upgrade on the old. Everything. While the Old Testament sacrifice could not cleanse a person of all their sins, Jesus' death on the cross can and did for all who would ever believe. And because of that, our sins can be forgiven by grace through faith. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So here's the last application on that idea. Brothers and sisters, do not let your past sins incapacitate you. Don't let that happen. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, if you are a member of the new covenant, the new covenant member, then all the perfect work necessary for eternal life is completed in Jesus. His righteousness will get you there, not your own. And so when you're beating yourself up over past sins, be very slow to let that linger. But let that guilt and shame of past things point you towards first a glory to God. Praise Jesus. You saved me in spite of that. That's who I was. That's me in my flesh. You saved me in that, that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While I was doing that, he provided salvation for me. First, let that remind us of the love of God for us. And second, do not let that incapacitate you to go, well, because I can't can't possibly be used by God. I can't possibly get up in the morning and go do these missionary ministry endeavors. I can't possibly be a a man or a woman of God now because those stains on me. brother and sister. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. You're not the separate class of Christians who have a special, significant kind of wickedness attached to you. Don't listen to the lie of the enemy in that. If you're forgiven, you're forgiven. I will remember their sinful deeds no more. This week we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving as a nation, as families. Hopefully you gather together and get to do that. Please remember this week, there is nothing for which we should be more thankful than the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we are eager to go to you in thanksgiving. Uh, God, we do not deserve this sacrifice. We have no appeal based on our worthiness, our goodness. Lord, we're so grateful that we can be saved by grace through faith, that the work finished on the cross establishes a new covenant, not an old covenant, not where when we do wrong we get kicked out of the land, but Father, you are gracious in the midst of our sin. I am convinced, Lord, by my time with my brothers and sisters in Christ here at this church, that many fall underneath this trap. They feel buried underneath their sinfulness, and so they remember it so regularly and so fresh that rather than letting it serve as it should, as a point of worship and thankfulness for the love and the grace of God. Lord, and also that they would see that as a, as a means by which we give the praise to the Lord for that sacrifice. God, there's a reason Jesus went on the cross, and it was those sins. Help us to remember those things and said, But Lord, I'm convinced that there are many today who need a special help and reminder that because those sins have been paid for in Jesus, we can walk in newness of life. We can walk as one who does not have those stains of sin on us. Help us quickly move beyond the moments of shame that are the natural result of a, of a Christian sinning, and Father, move into victory, and be reminded that we have much to do on this earth, as sinners saved by grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.